there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. This is Andrea Koppel. So glad you could join us today. I am well into my second mug of Café du Monde French Roast, and it is time for yet another caffeinated career conversation. Today, I am incredibly happy to have a former Mercy Corps colleague of mine, someone who is based in Bogota, Colombia, who is now in D.C. We're still doing this over Zencaster, so please excuse any of the digital crackling, but that's what happened happens when you're trying to get as many people interviewed as possible so that we can help all of you out and give you more guidance and direction in terms of the careers you want to get into. Provash Budin is currently the America's Regional Director for Mercy Corps. He has 20 years of international development experience encompassing leadership, program design, management, and implementation of both emergency and development programs. Provash, welcome to Time for Coffee. Good morning, Andrea. How are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you so much. I am really excited to have an opportunity to showcase the work that you and your team are doing in Latin America. And let's dive into our first question, which is really getting into the weeds of your current job as a regional director of the Americas for Mercy Corps. Well, great. You know, I've been doing this job now for about six months. Previous to this, I've been a country director for Mercy Corps and other organizations. And this is the first time I'm doing a regional director job for a big area of the world, which is all of America, is from Alaska down to Argentina. So part of my job is is to make sure that we've got quality programs that take place in countries like Haiti, in Guatemala, in Colombia, in Nicaragua, and also some of our work up in the U.S. and the Northwest. And so I work with our country teams to help them develop new business which means new proposals, looking at their strategies of what are we really focusing on over the next five to seven years in in our region and our country programs. And I also help out with the relationships that we have to have with our donors, with different national partners and other international organizations that really add value to the work that we're doing. And uh, so a lot of my job on a day-to-day basis is around making phone calls and talking to teams and traveling a lot. Can you take me inside a typical day if we were sort of a fly on the wall in your office or or in the car (laughs) or in meeting rooms? Can you give us a feeling for what we would be seeing and hearing and what kind of hours you're working? Well, you know, right now I start the day early because I have a six-year-old son who has to get on a bus at 6.15 in the morning. So I'm up early and then my work starts officially around 8.30. So I have some downtime in the morning to either go to the gym or catch up with some emails or make a few phone calls before I really roll up my sleeves, get into the office and start working with my colleagues. You know, for a good part of the day, I'm also answering emails, sending emails. It's a a big portion of work that a regional director has to do because of all the virtual management that takes place across the whole Western Hemisphere. But then because I'm based in Bogota, I'm still working closely with our country team in Colombia. So we get together and have meetings about what are we doing in this project or supporting kids? What are we doing right now to help out Venezuelans who are crossing into Colombia at this time and and the rest of the region? And then also get on phone calls with 
folks in headquarters and our technical teams to look at planning around new opportunities that we can have. That's a typical day. There's other typical days where I get on a plane and I travel out to different communities, talk to them, learn more about their needs, and then also spend time at other conferences outside of Mercy Corps and internally within Mercy Corps. And what's the importance of going to those conferences? As I mentioned at the outset, you're in D.C. right now to do advocacy, to give presentations. But can you take us inside a little bit and explain why that's so important to the work that Mercy Corps is trying to accomplish in all of these different countries? Well, at my level as a regional director, it's important that I'm able to elevate the work that we do within the region and profile the voices of the people that we work with and the issues that are important in the Americas. Issues such as migration, such as climate change, such as refugees coming into Colombia, the work that we do around agricultural productivity, land titling, and work that we do with violence prevention in the region. And so by coming to Washington, D.C., I'm able to meet with influential people in the United States government in think tanks that are trying to develop policy in the Americas to improve equality and and stability in the region. And so I talked to USAID, I talked to the Department of State, I talked to the United States Institute of Peace and other organizations to profile what Mercy Corps is doing and look at common solutions and if there's opportunities for partnerships as well to continue the work in the region. Provash, is there a particular project that Mercy Corps is implementing right now in your region that you could talk about and maybe break down into bite-sized pieces so that our listeners can better understand what it takes to actually accomplish the objectives of a particular project. Sure. Now, one area of work I'm pretty excited about in this region that we do and places like Colombia and Guatemala is around land titling. And you would think that, you know, oh, people have, they're on land and they live there and they work on the land. They're growing corn and beans and potatoes. But many times you find that people that are on that property and on that land in rural areas, they, they don't have their titles like you and I would have for our homes that we live in in the United States. And that's a big deal because it means that they're at times considered illegal on their land. They don't have a title to be able to walk into a bank and access credit, or they don't have the paper in their hand to be able to get state subsidies to reinvest in their land. And without the land, it can also create conflict in so many of the places that we work in. And so, you know, what we like to do is to be able to work with farmers, particularly to title their land, to cut down the time and the cost that is involved in getting that piece of paper in their hand. And once it's in their hand, we take that title to reinvest back in their properties and help them grow coffee, help them grow cacao, sugar cane, fruits, different vegetables, so they can sell that in market and increase income in their families to improve their lives. And so I think this is something that is relatively new for Mercy Corps to be involved in, but I really see it as one of the most transformational things that we can do is is just get people property titles so that they can be part of a formal economy and have more access to opportunities. Yeah, that's awesome. Your job before this one, as you alluded to, was as country director in Colombia. Talk about what you had to do as a country director. And if you could 
give us a little, you know, more details than you would if somebody were looking at your, at your resume? Well, you know, a country director is kind of like your field general in an organization. And you have to make sure that your teams on the ground are well-functioning, that your projects that you implement are of high quality, and that the relationships you're building are, are sustainable. And you have to be able to manage downward and get in the weeds about a human resource detail or trying to figure out, a driver's issues and they've, you know, wrecked the car somewhere and you got to figure out how to fix that, but at the same time address uh, higher level issues with headquarters around strategy, around donor relationships and looking at your annual plans and thinking long term. So you really have to pivot on a day-to-day basis between things that come up and you may have the best laid plans for the week on your schedule and agenda, but there's always surprises around the corner and you just have to be ready to tackle them and prioritize them as well of what's important and what's not important. It's also, you know, a country director has to have a lot of confidence in their team and know who has the talent to do certain things, then delegate past it to them and empower them to be able to do their work. Country director has to ensure that, you know, they're providing us a servant leadership role so that their teams are able to make decisions on their own, um, live with their consequences, but always providing support as a country director to the rest of your field teams. What do you think it takes to be a strong leader? You mentioned seeing the role of country directors as like a field general. What are those qualities? One key quality is actually being very self-aware of yourself and having the ability to know where your weaknesses are or areas for improvement and how to then get support around you to fill in those gaps. You know, for example, for me, it's knowing, you know, how to figure out if I don't have enough of the skills or ability to think through some hard financial decisions and do some deep analysis on that. I got to bring in a team to help me out on that. And I shouldn't pretend I can do it alone. Or if we're looking at some big proposals, it's important that we get the right people in place and focus our energies as a team and know who can do what by the tasks around that. So I think it's important for people to be self-aware and understand what the gaps are and how to bring a team around you to help you out. What is the best part of your current job and why? I really like traveling out to the field, talking to communities we work with, talking to farmers, to youth in the countryside, talking to women's groups that are working on things like environmental management, working on increasing their agricultural productivity, looking at youth engagement with how they're able to work with their local governments and citizen participation. You learn a lot. And it's important to always be able to talk to people, learn from them, because that's what the work is all about at the end of the day. And so also just traveling out to some of the beautiful areas that we get to work in. Sometimes, you know, I pinch myself saying, wow, you know, there's people who spend thousands and thousands of dollars on the Condé Nast travel adventure. And here I get the opportunity to go to some of these remote and beautiful places that many people don't get to go to and try and help out people at the end. And so that's rewarding and fulfilling. And I also like working with our teams to be able to land some new programs and projects. It's a good feeling when you're able to bring in some new resources and then get an opportunity to continue working for the people we serve. Great. And what is your least favorite part of the job and why? My least favorite part is is cleaning up an audit or having to dismiss someone in the process, usually, of cleaning up an audit. You know, when I say that, I mean 
that as a big organization, we manage a lot of resources and we have to be accountable for those resources. And at times when we're in the middle of operating fast moving emergencies or projects, sometimes we're not always our best in managing our own systems and policies and procedures. And then we have to clean that up a little later on. So it's, it's not a fun task, but it's something that has to be done. Provash, we all have our strengths and we all have the areas that we're continuing to work on. What skills do you wish you had but don't? And how are you coping? I actually wish I could remember people's names more frequently. That's it may sound minor, but I meet so many people and you know, so much of this work is about relationships. And I, I gotta admit, I'm not the best name rememberer. I remember faces quite well. And some of the names you got to deal with in this business aren't the easiest to pronounce, as you can imagine, right? Even mine. So that's one thing I wish I had a superpower skill at. And I think I could also improve around time management. I'm the kind of individual who likes to be able to say yes to a lot of things, to work with people, to help them out and solve the problems. Sometimes I have to be better at saying no and managing my time around the things I say yes on and prioritizing them better. So how do you cope with the names, with the not remembering names? And what about the time management? The the name piece yet. I try and write down names as much as I can uh, if I get a card or put it on my phone. But that's kind of a little disruptive if you're talking to someone immediately or at least try and remember to ask my colleagues or friend, what was that person's name again? Write down. And so now, I mean, just by having a phone with me and being able to type it in quickly, that's a little helpful. In terms of time management, it's just using better tools with my agenda and also forcing myself to say no more often because at many times you get all these requests funneling up to you, but it's important to understand what are the things I need to tackle and what are the things other people need to take on. And so I just train myself to be more conscientious about that on a day-to-day basis. I recognize now you are the head of the Americas and you were a country director, so very high level positions. What qualities and skills do you look for? Do you have your team look for in the people that you hire to join you in this work? A few skills and qualities are the willingness to, to take a risk and be creative. We're in a line of work where we want to make sure that we're not doing the same things over and over and over again if they're not having impact. And so we want to think outside of the box. We need fresh thinking a lot. And I like bringing people from different walks of life who can add different perspective to what we do. Another piece is just having the passion and energy. It's exhausting work. It's not a nine to five job. There's a lot of travel, a lot of discussions, and a lot of heart and soul put into working with people whose lives have been impacted by conflict and by disasters and trauma. And so there's a sensitivity that has to be brought to that. But also the passion and energy to stick with it. And as I said before, just recognizing areas for your own improvement, areas where you do have weaknesses and having the self-awareness to know when to turn to others to ask for support. So those are just broad qualities, I think, that are important for people to come into this type of work. It's not unique to this work. I think it's applicable to many other careers and different fields. But these are ones that I think set the platform for people with the emotional and intelligent side of the work that has to be done. So Pravash, many of our Java junkies are still in school For those who haven't yet graduated, 
what do you recommend they study? Not necessarily their majors, but what do you recommend they study to better prepare them for building their career in this field? Speak another language. Having a foreign language, two or three or more, is really important in an ever-increasing interconnected society and world. The interactions we have with people across different cultures and languages is extremely important. And not just in this job. Uh, we see this as well, just living in the U.S. If you're in California and you speak Spanish, you're going to be a step ahead of a lot of people because you can interact with so many new migrant communities coming in. And in our line of work, just having a strong language base or the ability to adapt to learning some new languages along the way is going to be really important. Another one is also, you know, practicing around debate and problem solving. Sometimes within college life, you get your work, you got to write your essays, you get your homework out. But I would hope that in today's college classes, there's more room for debate and critical thinking because you really need those type of skills to discuss things with different people of different mindsets and points of view. And it's important to be persuasive if you're going to be able to advance the work that, that we do. So those are two things that I think students should focus on. And in terms of just absorbing learning, you know, read about different cultures and different people. Pick up a, a book on some anthropological topic in some country that's interesting to you. Learn about the history of the countries or regions you'd like to be able to work in one day. That goes a long way. And it goes a long way to understanding and connecting with the people that you may eventually work with. Wonderful. Great advice. So you went to Whittier College in California and you majored in international affairs and Spanish. So you're practicing what you preach in terms of speaking another language. You minored in political science. Why did you dig into that field? Well, with international affairs, it's something that I was interested in probably since high school and also exposure from different family members who've been part of this business as well. And I had the opportunity to travel with my family to different places around the world when I was younger and really sparked my interest about the way people live their lives in other places and difficulties they face. So in college, I had the opportunity to major in international affairs. It also allowed me to spend a year abroad in Spain where later on in life, I actually met my wife there. So that was a good thing. And with the Spanish minor and also the political science, I was looking to do work in Latin America, an area that was increasingly of more interest to me. And I ended up working here now as the regional director. So it kind of all came to fruition, although I did spend a large part of my career on the other side of the planet in the Middle East and Africa and, and Asia. But at that time in, at my life, when I was in my you know late teens and early 20s, it sounded like a fun thing to do, to be able to work in other countries, use a language that I was learning. Not very good at it at the time, to, to be honest with you. I think I got some of my worst grades in high school in Spanish, but I improved it just by spending more time in Spanish-speaking countries. So international affairs, the language combination, and a focus on political science, just in terms of how communities and local governments operate was of interest to me in college. What did you do outside of hitting the books that turned out to be an asset for you once you started looking for a job? I don't know if you were involved in extracurricular activities. I see on your resume that you also received a music scholarship and were the music director of, I'm not sure if that's, that's your right. college radio station, KWTR, but can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, I, I play guitar. 
play piano. I've done it for a long time. I used to have a band in high school and a one in college as well. Lots of fun music like reggae and punk and jazz. It was a big mashup, but fun times. And I received a college scholarship around music and applied that in different settings. But it, it wasn't It was just uh, more extracurricular activities that were hobbies and just part of the overall, you know, fun part of life that you have when you're in college. I think some of the things I did outside of the studying that contributed to the work I do now was some work that I was doing in my sociology classes in Los Angeles that were working with uh, low-income neighborhoods and doing deeper analysis and studies about the type of lives people had in South and Central Los Angeles. I had also spent some time in Malawi in Eastern Africa doing an internship with the United Nations to work on getting water to people. I was working in a refugee camp for Mozambicans that were coming into Malawi after their civil war and had the fortunate opportunity to be able to expose to that and and the resources to do it. That really got me motivated to get more involved in this type of work. So you graduated from Whittier in 94. What was your first job out of school and how did you get it? I went back to Spain. After I graduated from college, I had a girlfriend there at the time, so that was a big draw. And then I had also wanted to get back just to take a break before going to graduate school. I knew at some point I'd go to graduate school, but I didn't want to jump into it immediately. When I went to Spain, I was an English teacher and a ski instructor. And I also attended a few bars here and there once in a while, but that was all fun when you're you know, 20, 22 years old. So uh, I took advantage of having a little bit of downtime after college. And every person has to determine if that's the best move for them. Some students will want to continue straight into graduate school. Others do want to take some time out. But before I went to graduate school and when I applied, I think when I applied to graduate school, it was recognized that I did take the time out. I went to a different country. I lived there. I studied some more. I was working there. And not necessarily in a development field, but at least just getting some work exposure. And for the graduate school that I went to at Columbia University, I think just being able to have those type of experiences and have that gap between your college experience and starting graduate school and learning some new things is always well received and well recognized. But everyone has to determine how they may want to manage that period of time in their life. But I had a good time in Spain. And then after that, I did go to Thailand for a little while to work in the north with a UNICEF program. Didn't get paid anything. And it was cheap up there. So I did learn a lot, but it it helped me establish some more skills around development practices, working with uh, youth in northern Thailand and job development with them. So I had that great opportunity to do that before I started graduate school. Do you remember how you got that job with UNICEF? Well, as I said before, I have a family that had worked in the United Nations before. And so I called them up and I said, I'd really like to try something in a different place. Do you have some contacts I could get in touch with? And so they gave me some contacts with colleagues that were working in that area. And I called them up and they said, well, you know, it's a great timing because we need people to be able to go out to these areas for about four, five, six months, collect some information, do some assessments, and also work with some youth that were training. And would you like to be able to help out? And I said, sure, I'll do it. So, you know, it was through contacts, family contacts. And so much of this work actually is through who you know and how you get connected. And in fact, my job with Mercy Corps came about from another colleague who sent me the job description for a job I had with the emergency response team. It wasn't for her. I probably wouldn't be working with Mercy Corps right now. We got to thank her for that. (laughs) I did. 
Provost, you mentioned Columbia University, where you got your master's of international affairs. You concentrated in economic and political development. How did you pick Columbia and what did you think of the program? Well, when I was applying to graduate schools, I wanted to get into a a rigorous program that was well recognized in the international community of a high standard of degree. And there's a handful of schools in the United States that offer that. One at Columbia, another one at Johns Hopkins or at Harvard or Princeton, a lot of the East Coast schools. But there's many good schools out there as well. And I also had one of my best friends that I had gone to school with in Spain. He was studying there at at that time. And another friend from Whitty. She was there. So I had talked to them and they said, oh, this is a great program. It's worthwhile checking out. So I applied and got in. So, you know, I thought when I looked at the course and the offerings that Columbia University had, and especially in the realm of economic and political development, which is what I still do today, I thought it was good training ground to really dig in into the intellectual and the academic side of development thinking and be able to have a network of like-minded individuals around me from different areas around the world who are focused on the same issues to work with and to study with and to learn with. So, Provash, this is the point in the Time for Coffee discussion when I ask my guests to share a story with our listeners about a low point for you in your profession when you found that you had to really dig deep to keep going to deal with a particular problem that you had, whether it was with a challenging supervisor or whether it was something that you screwed up or just didn't know how to do. How did you weather that period of time? How did you recover and move forward? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Everyone's going to face downtimes in their careers. It's really key about how you build your resilience to it or cope with it or manage it so that you can turn it into something well more positive along the way. For my downtime, I was working in Indonesia about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago in Aceh. And Aceh is in Western Indonesia. And it suffered from the tsunami back in 2004. And I was managing a large team. I was the field director at the time. And my boss was the country director or actually the Aceh director at the time. And probably, you know, not one of my my favorite bosses that I've had and was always on my case and micromanaging all the operational things I was doing. I really hadn't had that experience before with my other supervisors. They pretty much let me do what I needed to do and told me where I need to steer course. But this particular individual was just always on my case every single day, that felt like. And over things like how are you managing, you know, your fleet management, what's going on with the finances, what are you doing around this program decision, why are you making this program decision? I said, you know, you hired me to make these choices. Why are you questioning me? Because I'm not getting that type of feedback from the rest of my team who think we're on a pretty good track. And so it was one of those relationships where I felt that he was too much in my shop and in the weeds and he wasn't feeling like he could trust me to deliver deliver on certain things, even though we were delivering. And the way I coped with it was just asking people that reported to me, you know, is there something I'm doing wrong? Is there something I need to improve on? Or am I missing something here that that you guys feel that you're not getting my support or we're, we're doing something programmatically and getting all the reconstruction done and houses and infrastructure in these small towns that suffered from the tsunami? 
are we doing something wrong? And a lot of them said, well, you know, I think you're on the right track. I like working with you. But here's some areas I think that you could improve on. You know, we need to sit down more to talk about planning almost on a weekly basis instead of biweekly basis. Okay, that's good feedback. I, I can work with that. But I just tried to surround myself with a team to reinforce what I thought was being done right. And so I had a little bit of ammunition to discuss with my supervisor and that I wasn't left out in the cold. But it was a difficult time. It wasn't pleasant. And I think what I learned from it was to be able to reach out to others and get support, but also try and reflect on are there things that I'm doing as a manager, as a leader that I can improve on. I recognize there were a couple things. I was glad it was pointed out to me. I didn't think I liked the style of my supervisor and how he approached it. Probably could have done it better. There were some valid points he brought up, but it was hard. It was hard to take that type of criticism. But I think in going through that process, if that ever happened again, I think I'd be able to cope with it well and have more honest conversations with both the supervisors and my teams very quickly about what can be improved upon. And, you know, the way I look at it as well with people I may supervise and maybe they think that I'm overbearing on something is that I want to be able to help people succeed in their career. I'm not out to get anyone. But if problems arise, I want to be upfront and honest with them, but also give them an exit strategy and work with them to have improvements be made and give them a chance. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'll tell you, I also had somebody who was a micromanager when he was my supervisor. And what it taught me was what not to do <laughs> when I be, when I was managing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to experience that firsthand to appreciate just how unpleasant it is to be micromanaged. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in, in, in just one other thing, just in this type of career, you know, we enter in so many areas of work in different countries with different relationships and programs where there's so much ambiguity and you need to be able to trust your teams and people to be able to run with that. Obviously, you want to, you know, give them some buffers and area to work in, a space to work within. But I like to just let people, you know, run with it and help them along the way and not be in their daily issues. I don't think it's helpful for people to grow that way as well. So just a couple of final questions, Provash. You had mentioned at the outset of the interview about getting up super early in the morning to get your son off to school and going to the gym. Are there any other things that you do to kind of keep yourself both physically and mentally in the right healthy space so that you can perform to the best of your abilities? Yeah, this, you know, this line of work has a lot of different stresses. There's people that burn out because of the type of work, especially in the big emergencies. And it's always important that we are keeping ourselves mentally and physically agile and prepared. So things like, you know, going down to the gym and getting on the treadmill for a bit or on the bike. Or, and I also like, you know, on the weekends going bike riding with friends around Bogota and outside. My family, we like going hiking. I love skiing. Unfortunately, I don't live in a lot of countries where there's ski slopes. But when I get back to Portland, Oregon, where I'm from, I always like to get out and take breaks. You know, a lot of people I see, they're working so hard day and night for weeks and weeks at a time and don't take the time to spend with family and friends and recuperate. I think it's really important to do so. I rarely ever, 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 ever say no to someone's vacation time unless it's super critical that we're trying to get something done. But I want people to be able to have that space to recover. 
And I also think just, you know, we got so involved with reading all these proposals and writing emails just to disconnect from that and, you know, listen to some music, play my guitar, do something a little more creative is, is always fun. Right now with my six-year-old, I'm trying to teach him some piano and, and a little bit of guitar. So it's fun to engage with him on that. And then also, I also like to read fiction because so much of what we do is just, it's hard realities and just having some type of escapism is good every once in a while. But sometimes I get so tired, I can barely get through like three or four pages in the evening and I fall asleep. But it's important just to carve the time out for yourself. Great advice. Thank you. So final question. If you could go back and do Whittier all over again, what advice would you give yourself based on what you know now, the experience, the wisdom that you've gleaned over these years? I think, you know, if I was to go back to college and say, hey, Provost, here's a good chunk of advice to give back to you after 20 years in the field. One thing I tell myself is spend more time on getting involved in different community activities around the place you live in and the college town you're in. I think in this type of work, just being able to understand what families and individuals go through in their local areas is so instructive for how we deal with problems in other countries. It's not all academic. It really is about people-to-people engagement. And even though I had lots of people-to-people engagement with my friends across, you know, kegs of beer and parties and fun times at the beach, I think just making that extra effort to carve out days of the week or in the month to get involved in some of the community issues that were part of life in Southern California would have been useful for me. Provash, thank you so much for making time to have coffee with me in the Java Junkie community today. This was wonderful. I know lots of folks are going to get a lot out of the advice and the counsel that you are offering. I wish you a great and successful rest of your trip here in D.C. and safe travels back to Columbia, my friend. Thank you very much, Andrea. And I wish the best to all your listeners in their careers. And I'm really happy to be able to provide some thoughts on my experience. And thanks again for this opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.